welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, author Melina Marquetta speaks with YA author Will Kostakis about his new book, Rebel Gods, the thrilling conclusion to last year's bestseller, Monuments. A quick note again, as this was live and recorded over the internet, there's been some effect on the sound quality of the episode. But now, here's Chris Gordon, Readings Programming Manager, to introduce Melina. I would like to introduce you to someone who has had enormous impact on my life and I'm sure on your life. She is one of those authors that I feel like has written the truth about what it's like to live in Australia. She's someone who has never shied away from making her women scream and cry and be completely outrageous. It is, of course, Melina Marchetta, and she is going to be conversing with the one and only, drum roll again, wonderful Will. Uh, over to you, Melina. Hi, uh, thanks, everyone. Um, I was saying, you know, this is such a strange way to do things, but um, it works. Um, you know, I've done a, quite a few Zooms, so um, it, it, it works to a great extent, and then, of course, something also gets lost, so... Um, Let's hope that this kind of works. Um, Will, I'd say that Will probably lead, needs less introduction than I do. Um, he first came to everyone's attention when he won the Sydney Morning Herald um, Young Writer of the Year Award um, with his short story, Being Me. And then he was very well known because um, he was, you know, such a um, young writer to be published for the first time. Um, so he's written quite a few books. Loathing Lola is one of them, The First Third, um, The Sidekicks, and now with um, he's gone into a different direction in a way, and we'll be discussing that with um, Monument, the Monument series. Um, I don't want to spend too much time introducing him because I feel as if everyone knows Will and he's pretty good at introducing himself. So I will say thank you, Will, for um, involving me in this. Um, it's more nerve-wracking being the person asking the question, just so you know. Answering <laughs> questions is easy, so I'll probably be a lot more nervous than you are. Um, but I just let's let's go straight into it. One of the things. Uh, we're going to probably talk from a place. Will and I have a lot in common. We don't look like we've got a lot in common, but we do. Um, we're matching so, today and we didn't yeah, even coordinate. So, yeah. That was probably the most obvious thing I was going to say we have in common. But, you know, we're, we're from Sydney. Um, I would say he was a lot younger when he first got published, but I was considered someone quite young when I was published. We both come from um, non-English speaking backgrounds, as in, you know, um, Will's family is from Greece, my family's from Italy. Um, and also we, um, he probably has, he did it before I did. We, you know, we have shifted in um, genre to a certain extent. Um, and what I also feel we both have done is we've written outside, I suppose, our experience of, of gender. I have written from the point of view of a male in the same way as Will has written from the point of view of females and all of that. So I just feel as if, um, I don't know, I feel as if we we come from kind of the same pool when it comes to what our work is about as well. I think the question I wanted to ask, especially with this series, because I know that you'll want to talk about this series more than anything, was a question that I probably get asked quite a lot about um, my work. But when you were writing your first novel, um, did you think 
okay, I'm going to write this, but geez, one day I would love to write a fantasy novel. Or were you just really focused on, um, you know, a particular genre? A hundred percent. And I have to go back to my poor, long-suffering English teacher who also became my writing teacher when in year nine, she set us a hero's journey task. And it was my chance to, for school, write a fantasy story. But she foolishly set us a hero's journey task where you write along the hero's journey formula. But she didn't set a word limit. And when everyone else in the class wrote one page, I wrote an epic fantasy quest of 12,000 words with a cliffhanger for a next instalment. And she was like, well, this is terrible. But I always sort of yearned to write a fantasy novel. And while my first book didn't quite go to plan, I always envisaged that as a, like anyone growing up in the shadow of JK Rowling, it was going to be book one of a seven book series where you grew up with the characters every year. And then the first book, didn't really set the world on fire. So I was like, okay, I need to regroup and write other stuff. But I was always itching to write a fantasy novel and it always felt like something far off into the distance. And then 10 years into my career, I was like, wait, it doesn't have to be far off in the distance. I can have a crack at it now and see how I go. Yeah, isn't it interesting? And I think we'll talk about that a bit you know, later. Um, what holds you back from having a crack at it? Is it because you don't feel as if, you know, you're up for it or are you worried about what the whole world is going to think if you decide to say, well, I'm going to write a fantasy novel because my greatest fear was really what everyone was going to um, think about that direction after, you know, what I had written. I forgot to say to everyone, and um, Will did mention this in a lovely way during the week, but... Um, my first experience with Will's work, I, I taught for 10 years at a boys' school um, in the city. And, you know, boys and girls, I mean, I, I don't think it really makes a difference. Um, it was this constant argument with me about, you know, having to do their writing tasks and how everyone they were reading was either dead or um, I'd point out that I wasn't dead and, you know, I was in the classroom okay. with them. But it didn't matter because I was still on the other side as far as they were concerned. And I remember coming across um, your um, winning piece in um, the Sydney Morning Herald and I thought, okay, they've got no excuse now. He's, um, he's their age, you know, um, they're going to be able to say, well, you know, we can do it. And it was such a pleasure to be able to say, someone your age can do this. And also what I loved about that piece, and it's what I love about your writing, it is so accessible. And the one thing that we have to understand about the word accessible is it doesn't mean it's easy. And I've always hated that idea that accessible might mean easy. It just gives you a way in. And I think that what we want as writers and well, probably what we want as readers <laughs> is we want a way into something. We don't want to be, you know, I suppose, blocked out. We don't want someone to be writing from this great kind of height of I'm more important than you. And I think that that's what I had to offer them, this piece where it was written by someone um, their age, but it showed skill, no offence to my students, in a way that their work wasn't showing. And that was all about hard work and decisions. And, and it, was such, it, was, it was a day in my teaching experience that I do remember. Um, and that's why I suppose I'm curious about what was going through your head as a younger writer and, you know, where that, that desire from writing a fantasy novel um, did come from. Um, so my question, I suppose, 
you answered it to a certain degree, but were you a fancy reader when you I were was. I was, and you see it in the first drafts of my initial novels, I loved Terry Pratchett. So my first novels were very, they were those sort of books that you sort of talk about, sort of inaccessible, very, look at how smart I can be with words and here are 7,000 footnotes and here's me making fun of the characters as they're going off and doing their thing. So it was, it was a contemporary novel, at least the first drafts of Loathing Lola was, and it was then told through the lens of basically a Terry Pratchett novel because so often when we're younger, we're just sort of emulating what we're reading and what we're consuming. And I remember when she read the first draft, my writing teacher pulled me aside and she's like, Will, there's a story here, but you're talking down to your characters and that we can't connect with them. You need to strip all that stuff away. Look, you think you're smart. That's great. You're smart for a 15 year old. You're not by any measure of anyone's like on any sort of measure actually smart. So why don't you just be authentic, be truthful, and tell us what you really think about the world and tell the truth. Keep it simple and don't don't show your working. It should be invisible. And I've carried that advice with me ever since. Yeah, I um I feel the same way about research. And once again, we can, you know, talk about that later. Do you want to just talk really briefly about what the monument yep. series is about? And then I want to ask you about it. So I find that all of my books are a direct reaction to the books that came before it. And so the book that came before the Monuments Duology was The Sidekicks, which was this huge, it was another project that was sort of off in the distance. I thought I need to be a really, really great writer to write this story because it's about, and it's heavily inspired by my best friend dying. And then it got to the point where about six years into my career, I was like, oh crap, I'm forgetting what he looked like and I'm forgetting what it felt like to be in his presence. So I knew if I was going to reflect on that experience, I had to write it then and there, even though I didn't think I was a good enough writer yet to do him justice and our friendship justice. And I wrote that book and it was two years and I'm really proud of it. But at the same time, there's nothing like writing about losing your best friend for two years and you know, retapping that well. Like I often tell kids, like you think that there's this linear line between sort of the past and the present, but then sometimes you're in the present and you're thinking about the past and it's like you're back there. And I, in those two years of composition, I was back there sort of having him and then losing him. And it was torture. <laughs> and so when it came time for thinking about my next book, I still felt raw and exposed and I didn't want to do that to myself again, at least not so soon. Yeah. So what can I do? I made a list of all the things that I enjoyed when I was in high school and I kept coming back to fantasy. Like I would press my head against the glass of a Sydney train heading into school and I would imagine this sprawling fantasy epic playing out across the rooftops. And I was like, that brought me joy. Like I need to write that story. Yeah. And so... I wrote that and I drew on all of these, the things that made me happy as a teenager, video games like Legend of Zelda, TV shows like Alias, where, you know, young people could dress up in disguises and sneak into places like spies. And I thought, I think there's an idea here. And so I ended up with Monuments, which is three teenagers who skip school to find the ancient gods that are buried under different Sydney high schools. And, you know, it is just a caper set over three days. And it's just lots and lots of fun and I shied away from 
all of the emotional heaviness of the sidekicks because I was like, I don't want to deal with any of that. I just want to just... It still had emotion in it, though. Like, I mean, it was still oh, about disappointing friendships and, yeah. you know, so it's... it's You shied away from probably the darker side of things. <laughs> yeah. There. And I, I left a lot of... I put a lot of things in there, but I left a lot unsaid and I kept my characters really distracted. And then when I launched into Rebel Gods, I was like, look... I've got three or four years distance from the sidekicks. Now I'm really comfortable getting back there, pulling these characters apart and really, really, really challenging them because I love, as much as I love fantasy stories, I'm always curious about what happens after. What happens after, say, a city has been levelled and it has to rebuild and these people who have gone on adventures, what happens to them when they have to rebuild? Like my favourite part of Lord of the Rings was always, you know, Frodo returning to Hobbiton to see that it had been destroyed. And I love, I love the, the tragedy of afterwards and how those characters grow as a result of the, the pain that they've experienced. Do you know, so when you started writing the first mm-hmm. novel, did you know it, that it would be part of a series? I, I pitched it as two books. I wanted, you know, in and out. I look, of course, we all dream and I still have that dream of a seven book series. But at the same time, I'm way too afraid of telling people, oh, yeah, a book is coming. I'm not going to finish this story yet. There's more coming. I'd be too afraid of crossing roads for the rest of my life until I was done with that. And so um, I always knew it was two books, one bombastic adventure and then another one that was dealing with the consequences and a little bit quieter in terms of plot. Okay. Because I, I, I mean, I always remember I wrote Finnegan of the Rock. Mm. And can I just ask, can everyone hear my annoying child calling out to me? <laughs> Maybe. I'm, I'm going to just, in one second, I'm just going to go over and threaten a child. Please don't call the department on me or anything. But I am so irritated by her at the moment. So <laughs> just know that I will probably stand up in a moment and go and speak to her. It's, it's um, all good, Verda. I think that everybody's on your side, darling. Just give me one moment. <laughs> Don't you reckon, Will? Everybody's on your side. There's not a person out there that hasn't been a parent or a child that doesn't understand exactly what's going on. You've got to know, for the five minutes before the session started, we're like, oh, something's going to go wrong and we can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Look, okay, while Melina is gone, she was really big and she's, she's a really generous, kind soul. Everyone who's met her knows that. And when I asked her to do this event, she was like, I was like, look, I want it to be an in conversation. I want to talk to you about how amazing your books are. And she's like, no, shut up. Make it all about you. And now that she's gone, I can make it about her, but we're not going to tell me. Right tell me all about it. I'm going to look very busy. Well, you know, you, you got rid of your... <laughs> Melina ran off. She abdicated the throne. And so I'm in charge for a little bit. I just wanted to say that Melina has been such a guiding oh, light in my career. And, you know... I always make the joke of when I went to meet her for the first time, I hadn't actually read any of her work, but I wanted to tell her how amazing she was anyway, because, you know, everybody wants to be Melina Marchetta when they pick up the pen and they write. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to say that I've been slowly reading her work and I've read all of them now and especially her adult books, which I read this year during lockdown. And they were, I don't use this word lightly, but they were, a real spiritual experience, especially the place on Dalhousie, because, you know, she captures place so beautifully and she captured the inner West. And, you know, I went to school in the inner West school and university, and I felt a pain. She realized those places so beautifully 
that I felt a pang for what was missing while we were all trapped at home. And I really think that as famous as you are and as celebrated as you are, I still think you are not famous enough. And that is the hill I will die on. But now you're back, so I'm <laughs> making it about thank you. you. I don't want it to thank be you, about thank you, thank you. I don't feel famous at this very moment going and telling off my child. Um, and the good thing about your home is you don't feel famous in your home. But um, thank you for saying that. But you know what, at the end of the day, and, you know, it's, I think this is the beauty of having a long career. I have had a 29-year published um, experience and, of course, I wrote Ala Brundi for a couple of years and it's, it's the beauty of staying with something and I think if I had to pat myself on the back for anything, it is that. It's persevering and I think this is why I find your work interesting. It's, it's also, you know, when you've written your first novel and even your second novel, beloved novels to me, um, probably my most beloved novel is Francesca, but you write two novels about Italian girls in the suburbs in the inner west, you feel as if the world's not going to let you do anything else. Mm-hmm. And your route, your, the route you could take is, oh, well, then I'm not going to do anything else but this and good. That's fantastic. Or else, no, I, I want to go on the, in that direction that you wanted to go to when you were writing that amazing long thing that your teacher said no. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it was, it's just that. You have to just, um, at the end of the day, you have to write what you want to write. Yeah. And I think I got to do all of that. And then with Dalhousie, I thought, well, hey, everyone, I did all of that, but I'm coming back to the Inner West. And it, it's, it was such, for me, it was so kind of liberating. And I knew that world really well. So it, it's about that experience and, um, and not being kind of blocked in because I'm sure this happens for other writers, but I can tell you it happens a lot when you come from, um, you know, uh, we're going to use a stereotypes, multicultural background or, you know, diversity, whatever, that yeah. people want to put you in a box. And the moment you step out of the box, it's like, no, 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 no. We, we didn't, we were congratulating you for this, but don't go in a direction that we haven't controlled. It's, it's all of that. Yeah. So, and that's what happens as a, um, as a writer, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I was getting back to when you were talking about knowing that it was going to, there were going to be two books when I wrote Finnegan, I didn't. I just, I really just wanted to write Finnegan. And sometimes you write a line or you write a sentiment and or a character and you think that character is still with me, but I'm just going to let them stay, you know, a while. And I remember the excitement from my publishers both here and in the US when they realised it was going to be a trilogy. Like they were excited because the word trilogy, you know, meant <laughs> something. Whereas for me... I felt as if I failed because I couldn't contain a story in one, you know. And you scared me because I was like, I tell you, you know, Melina, I'm going to write two fantasy books. And you're like, and you were like, you think it's going to be two, but it's going to be three. And I'm like, no, like two in and out and I'm gone. So I'm glad that it's just two. Um, It is. You can't say that though. I know. That's my problem where I was like, great, it's two. There's a really great ending. I'm really proud of it. And now... All I'm getting is teenagers in my inbox saying, when is book three? When is book three? I'm like, 
Oh. Yeah, and you have to forgive yourself if there is a book three in a year's time. You just have to say, okay, I said this, but, you know, it's it's basic. No, 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 no. If it becomes a number one bestseller, it was always made my plan for it to be a seven-book series. Seven books, I for sure. So, um, I know. You, you, you're allowed to write your own narrative, um, and if someone quotes you that you said this, just... So I was just going through a bad like, oh, I was in my contract negotiation phase. I couldn't say anything else at that point. <laughs> so do, you, do you let genre get in the way of things? Like, do you, do you feel like when you're writing something like this, do you think, okay, this is the genre, this is what other people have done in this genre, this is what I have to do? Or do you just, what do you do? So I come at genre as the kid who did English Extension 1 in high school, which was very, these are, this is genre, these are the rules, how are you going to extend the genre? And so I read widely enough that I had some understanding of what everyone was doing. The main thing for me that I wanted to do was I wanted to write in the genre, but to tell a Will Kostakis novel within that genre. So I was like, okay, what makes a Will Kostakis novel? You've got sort of some Greekness thrown in there. Um, family awkwardness and relationships, uh, strong friendships, and some elements of queerness thrown in there. And I wanted to be like, okay, how do I apply all that to the fantasy genre? And that's going to be, you know, my my contribution to the canon. I never set out to be like, I'm going to write the best fantasy novel. And by all means, I can list a like a whole ream of authors who do it a whole lot better than me. But I thought this is the best way that I could do it. And it is my, it's my perspective on the fantasy genre. And I'm using the fantasy genre to tell a story that I want to tell, which was about sort of the pain of not being able to connect with sort of grandparents who have long passed and also talking about the changing in terms of the rebel gods, the changing relationship sort of with my mum as I've grown up and grown more independent. And so that's really what I set out to do. So I just, um, I heard that, but I just gave into the TV thing. So everyone know that when this is over, the TV gets shut for the night. So just, so you know, that, um, <laughs> but I, I could actually tell that in that, like, it was one of the questions that I had written down for you about, you know, um, is Connor Will and his mum, like there was just, yeah. this, but I, I think it's me thinking that I just now think Will and his mum or Will and his yeah. grandmother. And, you know, it just kind of comes through, you know, in, in so many things. That's the thing. Rebel Gods was supposed to be the book about the the son and the father, <laughs> you know, time constraints and pandemic. I was like, oh, I can't research what having a dad is yeah. like. Like I am like my mum and my grandmother are such potent forces that I can try to write around them. And I have, but I keep coming back to them. They are home. Like that is the experience that I know. And that's that's the experience that I want to share with people because you know, I tried to write monuments with absent parents and for three drafts, I wasn't connecting with it and I felt like there was something missing. And then I add in the sassy mum and I'm like, oh, this is, this is me. This is what I connect with. And so yeah. I keep getting pulled back to that. And whether I'm just a bad author who keeps relying on his lived experiences or not, who can say, but I wanted to, with monuments, I was like, look, I want to write like a best of of everything that I've written. So there were pieces of sort of the media analysis that you and the satire that you got in Loathing Lola. You got the reflection 
uh, on the Greek experience that you got in the first third and you got sort of the potent friendship stuff from the sidekicks. And I wanted to sort of do a retrospective of where I'd been as an author and also take it in a surprising new direction. Okay. What about setting? Cause you know, um, I love, like I, I always, uh, there's always a sense of Sydney in yeah. your work. And one of the things that I found, I could not get out of my head. I, I worked at St. Mary's Cathedral. Yeah. Um, and I remember someone back then, someone's job was to ring the bell um, mm-hmm. for the cathedral, not for the school. But I could not get that school. And it's not a private school or anything, but I couldn't get that school out of my head when I was um, reading this. And I, it reminded me of how schools, when I was in kindergarten, I went to a convent school and we were down in the convent. There was always something frightening about the perimeters. There was always <laughs> something beyond that was frightening. And then when I went to proper primary school, we had a gully, which I ended up writing about in The Gorgon and the Gully. There was always an evil man at the bottom of the gully. There was always a myth. You know, when I went to Rosebank, it was a do- there were dormitories, there were stories there. Yes. So did that come from your experience? It was... There were some rumours about my school, which was Newington College in Sydney, but also this is the product of me being a touring author. I would visit schools and I would be, sh- I was shown sort of the back end of all the schools, all the abandoned corridors that had been bricked over and sort of abandoned. And I'd always ask teenagers, what is the most ridiculous rumour you have heard about your school? And there are some that repeat, you know, there are some that like, oh, there are World War II bunkers that are still there and you can find the entrance and you can sneak between all the buildings through these underground network of tunnels. Uh, That was the big one that kept coming up. But I, you know, we spend so much time in schools and, you know, your imagination goes wild and you have the urban legends that get passed down from older kids to younger kids. And so I really wanted to tap into those. And I sort of, because this was a book that, you know, you got to see five different schools. I was like, great, I'm going to make sure that I tap into as many of these rumors and as many of the different kinds of schools that I visited on tour. I want to put them into this book. Yeah. I, 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 got a sense of that because I feel as if I've seen a lot of schools myself and there's so much you can do with schools. Like I can understand why books that are set in schools or else even books that are set in a house or films that are set in that one house and you put a whole lot of characters in there. Like there's just so much going on. What about, let's talk diversity because I, you said something during the week, which I really loved Um, And it was about the fact that you wanted, you know, with this book, you didn't want to be writing about, um, and you'll say it better than I did, it wasn't just going to be about, you know, when you have a Greek boy who's gay, it has to mean that it has, there have to be issues and, and you just loved being able to write this character where that wasn't the issue. There were other issues like these gods, you know. Well, that's it. Whenever, and it seems to be, you know, a trend, especially in Australia, when we look at identity in a text, that identity is centered and it's usually somebody thinking, oh, how do I come to terms with my identity? How do I overcome it? How do I make peace with it? That identity is always framed almost as a negative. And it's always, it's never really written for kids who share that same identity and would see themselves. It's usually written for the people who other people like that as almost an educational tool. And I was like, I don't want to write another coming out story because, you know, coming out stories certainly have their place. But if you go and meet kids, they don't care if 
their peers are gay. Like there are people who are faking being gay on TikTok for clout. Like that's what teenagers are doing now. Like it is fashionable, it is celebrated and it's wonderful. And so I wanted to write a book that wasn't getting, that wasn't working through the grievances I had with being gay or that older people had with being gay. I wanted to show them a way forward that they can still, they can be the gay Greek kid and they can go on an adventure. Yes, they still have to face conflict, but that conflict doesn't come from coming out. And one of the central, like my main reason for my character to sort of go on this adventure is that at the beginning, he's ostracized by his best friend. His best friend is like, look, I don't want to be friends anymore. And I remember I was talking to my publisher about it, you know, the reasons why that would happen. And I was like, look, sometimes you don't get a neat reason and I'm actually not interested in giving a neat reason for it. And one of the suggestions was, oh, Will, but like he's gay. So why don't we make it about him, his friend not accepting him for being gay? And I was like, no, like let's, let's not do that. And, but it's so funny that that's, they're the stories that we expect from queer writers and they're the experiences that we expect to read and enjoy when really teenagers don't, there are coming out stories, but teenagers want to see examples for who they can be after they can come out. We're so obsessed with the beginning of the process of coming out that we forget to reflect that you can also live a fulfilling life that comes after coming out. Um, and I, I know because it is like, um, you know, cultural diversity that you feel as if, um, you know, for me, it's what you're explaining is you just want it to be the norm that, you know, this is normal. Um, and what tends to happen is it, it's almost like, and I'm going to use the other again, because it's like the other, whether it's someone from a, you know, like, I don't know, non-Anglo background or someone who's gay has to come with the issues. It, it has to come with something. Yeah. And you just think, well, why can't it just be them? And what comes with them is just what comes in life. And you're resisting that quite a lot. And I know that that happened even back with Ella Brundy, you know, mm-hmm. um, because there's an aspect of a story, a stereotype that goes into your stories. Yeah. But then you think, I just want to move on from it. I don't want it to be, you know, um, the issue that it doesn't need to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I tried to do that with um, in... And she had the smallest role in it, but in um, the place on Dalhousie, one of the character's sisters, Tom Mackey's sister, is gay. And her biggest dilemma was that she was going to um, bring her girlfriend to her formal and the fear could have been that she wasn't going to be allowed to, but her greatest fear was that her parents were going to make a big deal about the fact that she wasn't (laughs) going to be able to, you know. And as usual, it would be their big issue. It, It has to all be about them. So there are so many different areas that you can go when it comes to conflict. It doesn't have to be the obvious. Yeah. And that, and that conflict is more representative of where we are now. And it's, whereas, you know, the conflict of coming out and not being accepted and not being bare minimum tolerated, that feels like a story for 10 or 20 years ago. And, yeah. and it's, I, I was going to say, do you ever feel that you in yeah. this day and age, I mean, I know you've had issues in the past, but, you know, if you forget this year, because no one's seen anyone this year, but um, do you feel as if you're still kind of getting a weird vibe or no vibe at all? That's the thing. It was, so that first year, so when I came out with the release of the Sidekicks, um, the Catholic Education Organization decided, hey, let's let's demonise this guy for a little bit. And um, 
I, and look, a lot of the people that I sort of rely on English teachers and people who had seen me speak, they didn't, you know, come to my defense. The people who really rose up to say, hey, wait, no, we like Will coming to speak to us. You know, he's not some predator were actually the teenagers of the schools. So if they found out that my gigs had been canceled, then I had one school where the kids took a photo of me off Instagram and blew it up to life size. It looked pixelated as all hell, but then they printed it out over five or six A4 sheets and then pasted me around the school library (laughs) as protest. And look, the thing is, these schools have been dragged sometimes kicking and screaming by the students and the needs of their students who are their main stakeholders and now i go to those same catholic schools that would have paused or hesitated or told me not to speak about gay characters or being gay in my presentations those schools now have lgbtqia plus alliances Hmm. and they have safe spaces in the school where queer students can meet and talk about their queerness and teachers and librarians have been doing the work and educating themselves and the difference like look really marriage equality in itself not that big of a deal but seeing that it's sort of ushered in a huge change of attitudes you know and it's really trickled down you know trickle down economy uh, economics doesn't work trickle down kindness always does and that's why you know when our leaders are mean to a certain sort of ethnic group then that trickles down as well. And we need to resist stuff like that. Um, But I've noticed that teenagers have really sort of stepped up and they have shaped the schools that they are in. And plus schools have seen the emotional toll and the mental health toll that- I was gonna say, yeah. And that is is a far bigger liability to them than uh, I think they realized at first. Um, So they've had to change pretty quickly. But isn't that, like, I mean, I suppose the important thing about that is that those policies didn't come from someone at the Catholic Education Office thinking, you know what we should do? We should, you know, have these. Or It it came from the kids' needs and what the kids want. And, you know, it's it's the power of what they want because, Mm -hmm. you know, I taught at a Catholic school for so long and I'd like to think that my school wouldn't have done that. But... In saying that, if a school is controlled by the Catholic Education Office, then you are constantly fighting, you know, what they've got to say. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, I mean, that in itself is is change happening because of what gets written. And, like, my thing, I say this all the time, when I was a kid, I loved reading so, so much, but I never, ever, ever, ever saw myself in the pages of a book. And... When you don't see yourself on the pages of a book, you actually don't think you're important. Like it wasn't, no one was telling me that, but I just thought I was insignificant, that there was something wrong with me. There was just, it was all this negativity. And I think that that happens with any child or any young person who isn't seeing themselves, you know, in the pages of a book. And I think that you know, in what you've done with your work. I mean, you could say that to a certain degree you've started that movement. You've been part or instrumental in that movement. I am a very, very, very small part of, but, you know, that's... Um, none of the pieces of a movement is a big part. Like, it, it's all about those small parts. And I just think that, you know, you're, I'm constantly... I, I wouldn't say for one moment that I regret anything I've written... Mm-hmm. But, geez, I'd like to go back 10 years or 20 years. It's something that I wrote 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I get this opportunity if I ever get to adapt for film. 
but I think why did I write about four, you know, I know that there was a bit of diversity, but they're four straight girls, or why isn't there this in the book? And, of course, it was that time, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's not a regret, but if I had to do it over again, I could never present the world with this is the normal because it's not the normal. Exactly. And we always talk about diversity as like, oh, this obligation so that, you know, people, um, oh, we have to do this now. It is a checklist. No, it's, it's not. It's actually reflecting the diversity that exists. It's the real world. And if you don't have that diversity in your text, it isn't real. You have written a fantasy novel, not a contemporary novel. Exactly. Yeah. I tried to do it a bit with, um, you know, because you have to be careful with little kids because I've been writing the Zola series and they're, like, she's in second grade, but um, her next-door neighbour, Omar, is Muslim and we know that because they've still got the decorations up from Ramadan and on the other side is Leo and his two mums. I never go into explanations, but that's the reality of those kids' lives. They play together and for me... It's not about even someone like Leo who's got two mums or Omar to see themselves in a book, but it's for everyone else to see it in a book and think, oh, this is normal because I think that we or our children now, I'm part of the dominant culture now, but our children will, um, I suppose, grow up to think that they they are more worthy of the world because they're present in our stories. And I think that it's that. It's about that idea that you're more worthy than someone else or less worthy than someone else because you're not in popular culture. You're not in, in, you know, our stories. Um, And I think that it's, you don't write. And I know that you've said you don't write to do that. You don't write to tick a box, but the reality of your character's lives is ticking that imaginary box of, you know, this is what life is like. Um, I'm aware of time and I'm aware that I've seen little questions come up. I just want to ask one more question. It's about humor. Yeah. Because, you know, regardless of whether you're writing about death mm-hmm. or, um, or you know, um, angst or anything, like um, there's so much humour in your work. Do, do you come from a funny family or is it the exact opposite? Um, I never thought I grew up in a funny family. I thought I was just the, the rebel funny one. And then, you know, that thing happens when you reach a certain age and your parents and grandparents stop being the parents to you and they start, you start seeing them as a, a fully fledged human being and they let you see more of themselves as well. I realised, oh, you know, my mum has a wicked sense of humour and my grandmother has a wicked sense of humour and that's sort of, that's in me and I carry that around. And look, I... I've always used humour, usually as a defence mechanism, especially when I was younger, um, before a plastic surgeon fixed my face. I would always say, oh, hi. Like, my my author bio for my first book was, um, Will has a nose that looks like it's trying to eat his face. And that was before I got a nose job. And I'm just like, oh, like, my insecurities were front and centre right there. And so um, I always, I would use humour. It was always like, I'll make the joke about myself or something else before somebody else. else does. Yeah, and it takes away the power. But then, like it or not, you end up becoming the clown. And so uh, in my old age, I've become a little calmer with the way that I use humour. 
And also because I've learned the hard way that lots of people don't like, I have the sense of humor of a drag queen after five drinks. And so lots of people do not like that. Like me just, hi, do you know that you just don't have a chin? It's just your mouth and then neck. Like people don't like that. Remind me not to go out with you when you get drunk one night. (laughs) Uh, People don't like that sort of observational humor, but humor has always been my way of making sense of the world. And, you know, I can't help but put that into a book. And especially with Monuments and Rebel Gods, the main purpose of that, because I found I was going into schools and I was like, hey, I'm really funny. Let me tell you funny jokes for 20 minutes. Here, read my books. And then kids would read my books and they'd email me, be like, I've been crying for three days straight. I was like, oh, I need to actually write a book that is more in tone with at least you know, the persona that I put on and the way that I perform. So Monuments and Rebel Gods was me capturing that sort of humorous energy of my presentations into a book. And it was trying to have fun, you know, and tell lots and lots and lots of jokes. But I think all of my works from the most serious to the more fantastical will always have a a thread of humor running through them because life is too short not to laugh. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Well, it's it's um, something that I I certainly it's it's interesting when you can be reading about something that's very very sad and you can still find the humour in it. I always love the line between pathos and humour. Like I just um, yeah, so you do that well. I'm going to read these things at the side. I know I'm going to get everything wrong because um, <laughs> at the top, but um, this is um, what was the idea of your covers? Will you know I love them? This is from Milena. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the idea of your covers, Will? You know I love them, except some librarians have mentioned that the covers do not do your books any justice. What do you think? I I love all of my covers. I think um, they all do something really, really different. Uh, to zero in on sort of the Monument series, they're the covers I had the most sort of input on. I pitched to Hachette, my publisher, I was like, look, I want a book that screams like sort of those old school Star Wars one sheets that were illustrated and really epic. And so they gave me that one. And then when we went with Rebel Gods, we went with something a little bit more cartoony. Um, it was my publisher's, uh, my editor actually pitched, let's zoom out on the kids so that we can actually see them wielding their powers. And I was given free reign of what do you want down here? And I was like, give me an Escher painting style, sort of really weird trippy world. Um, and I found that this cover is super inviting and it draws kids in. Um, but look, at the end of the day, I'm always inspired. I always see my covers about six months before I finish my last draft of the book. So I always draw on the energy of the covers. And like, if you read the sidekicks, I have a lot of jokes about the design of the cover that I've incorporated into the book that were random design elements that looked cool um, on the sidekicks cover, but I worked that into the actual book. So for me, it's, I think that the, the covers match the stories, but I would love to see as much as I love the first third and its cover, I think it pops. This is a cover for librarians. It's not a cover for kids, mostly because... See, kids... I love that cover. Isn't See, that interesting? Because it's for you. It's... Yeah. <laughs> and because it's it says like... your name on it. <laughs> but no, no, but I remember when I first saw that, I think yeah. I loved the colours. I loved... I loved the simplicity of it. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I talk to kids about the imagery and sort of the style and like a hand coming down from the cloud saying, you must do this. And it's completely lost on teenagers. 
And, yeah. um, but look, the whole point of this cover was to reintroduce me to, you know, the gatekeepers who give books to teenagers. So it succeeded in what it had to do. Um, but yeah, I love all of my covers and I'm so grateful for all the talented designers who put so much work into making them so wonderful. Okay, I'm going to end this with two. We have to end this with two questions. One is um, from Amy. What's next for Will? Is it more fantasy? Is it sci-fi? Uh, so I can actually show you what's next. It is... This comes out next month because, sure, I have not been productive enough in the pandemic. It's called The Greatest Hit. It is for Australia Reads. It is a contemporary... Um, love story set during the first lockdown of COVID, um, but also because nobody wants to read about a pandemic in the middle of a pandemic, it also talks about five years afterwards. And so it is a split narrative set presently and five years in the future. And it is a really beautiful love story about writing poetry and music. And I just finished one of my final reads of it today and it's just so beautiful and I'm so proud of it. Lovely. Um, and so when does it come out? Did that comes that? out, uh, I think, October 27th. Okay. I, I thought when you, up, you were going to tell us that you've recorded an album or something. No. So. Oh, <laughs> well, that's, oh, that's next year. That's next year. No. Okay. Um, and it's so because it's an Australia Reads book, it is a special price of $3. And because I always get harassed by people who want to get copies of Loathing Lola and it's no longer in print, if it's something you kind of want and you're a completionist, please pre-order it because I'm not sure how many copies they're going to be. Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to say there's two more questions. One is from Jenna. Is there a line or moment in Rebel Gods you're most proud of? Yep. The last line, hundred percent. I, yeah, I, I, all of my books when I'm drafting them, they have really, really sudden abrupt endings. And then my publishers always make me change them. And this was the first time I wrote an abrupt ending where the publisher was like, no, nope, leave it. That's good. And um, I really, really love it. And it's, it's an understated way to tie together both books. And yeah, I just, that final line, I really like. But I can't tell you what it is. Sorry. <laughs> I've got the book. So I just finished the first one. So I'll read the second one. Um, my last question, um, just, and it might go nowhere, but you mentioned that you did extension and you did, um, uh, what was it called, genre. What did you do? Uh, we did crime fiction you're going to write a crime fiction novel. And I'll tell you why. I taught, I taught extension one, I taught genre, I taught crime fiction, and it stuck with me so much that I ended up writing um, Tell the Truth, Shame the Devil. And I remember getting out my notes of the conventions yeah. of um, crime writing. Like I just threw them all out after, but there yeah. were one or two that stuck in my head. So yeah. don't, don't forget well, that little part. No, no, I... I um... It is, I'm not going to be that person because everyone's been like, Will's, when's your next contemporary? My next book after Greatest Hit is another contemporary. And then probably the book after that, I've got a dynamite idea for a crime story that I'm really itching to write. For, so, so get your extension be. notes out, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that was lovely. Um, as I said, Thank a strange so way to do interviews. Um, and I'm sorry about the child um, who's going to get in trouble when I get off, um, when no, I just decline. <laughs> <laughs> but um thank you will that was just and thanks for asking me to do this because um yeah 
it's just no, it's, it's always lovely to chat to you it's a pleasure and you know thank you for being such a guiding light and for being so generous with your time and everything that you do and uh for everyone who is in the audience who hasn't read either melina's uh the place on dalhousie please buy a copy read it and there's also her zola series which is essential reading for younger readers and thank you thank you yeah see you. uh if we were in a hall right now People would be standing up, Melina and Will, they would be standing up and they would be giving you a standing ovation because not only did we learn more about Will's work, more about your work, Melina, but we also learned about the process of writing and that is a gift that you've given all of us. To you, Will, to you, Melina, so, so much love. To everyone out there, stay safe. I look forward to seeing you soon. Same place, same corner of my house. Uh, what a bloody treat. And the crowd goes wild! Thank you so much, everyone. And all the along. Melbourne people, I'm thinking about you all the time. Yes. We're also thinking of you. <laughs> See you later, everyone. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and tea. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.